Welcome back to Spotlight 19. Justin Tracy here. We have another great show for you. Jeff Beals joined us for our Tiny Town Hall series on February 25th, which we'll get to right after we briefly discuss John Fazzo's votes and activities this week. Before we get to Fazzo and Beals, we wanted to update you regarding a story that came out after last week's Tiny Town Hall with Pat Ryan. He was asked by one of the attendees about his past work for Berico Technologies, where he worked in 2011. That work included potentially working for the US Chamber of Commerce on a project that would have discredited left-leaning groups, including labor groups. However, Pat responded that the work was never done, and there was no indication that it was. Although it appears he was aware of the nature of the work from the emails that are publicly available. On Thursday, February 22nd, The Intercept, an online news journal, published an in-depth report on Pat, including a look at his work at Berico as well as The Hack. The Daily Freeman also picked up the story. Pat responded to the story by issuing a statement that the past work was never completed and he stands with labor groups today. So moving on to John Fazzo. His recess ended this week, as did Black History Month, which he failed to publicly acknowledge on any of his social media. And it appears that he did not attend any events either to celebrate or bring awareness to it. We'll see if he fares better with Women's History Month in March. Fazzo cast two votes this week. The first was in favor to weaken Dodd-Frank, the act put into place after the financial crisis. The bill he voted for will permit the capital requirements for banks to be based on future risk only, rather than including past losses as it does now. This means banks could be more likely to fail again. A senseless bill that Faso and the GOP will explain away using the tired talking point that it will help local banks when it just encourages riskier behavior by banks. The other vote was a bill that makes it a federal crime for websites to promote sex trafficking and prostitution. While this bill seems well-intended and it received almost a unanimous vote for passage, including Fazos, there's a risk to keep in mind here that some of the victims of the sex trafficking industry or sex workers might end up being unfairly targeted or subject to federal charges. We hope that this legislation is reviewed carefully if it ever reaches the Senate to make sure this doesn't happen. We won't be having our five fast FASO facts this week, but it will return next show. We wanted to discuss two non-vote FASO issues. The first was his recent response to an op-ed in the Poughkeepsie Journal in which a constituent expressed disappointment that Fazzo is difficult to reach. I have also expressed this disappointment to him personally. Fazzo published his own letter calling the constituent's objections, quote, sour grapes, and that she was a partisan and has called his office over 60 times. We've been wondering if he tracks our calls, and the letter suggests that he does. Anyway, we reached out to the constituent, 
And this is what she had to say. Today we're speaking to Susan Jaworski, who wrote an opinion piece about John Basil's accessibility that was published in the Poughkeepsie Journal on February 18th. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today, Susan. Thank you for having me. John Fazzo actually responded to your letter earlier this week and said he actually is accessible. So I just wanted to get some of your thoughts on that. I'm glad my letter caught Representative Fazzo's attention because now he knows these changes at his district office matter to his constituents. And I'm glad he responded because it's important that Representative Fazzo does make himself available to his constituents. And what caught me in his letter was not the sour grape statement that people keep asking me about, but it was the word partisan. And and I think Representative Fasso, like many in politics, use this word and find it to their advantage to make it look like constituents are divided. Two issues in that letter. One was health care. That day in Tinderhook, when he heard the struggle of Miss Mitchell, was experiencing with the health care since the ACA, I mean, before the ACA, I could see he got it. He really got it. You could see it in his face and his response of, I promise, to Ms. Mitchell. And, you know, you don't get to Representative Fasso's or my age and not know a very sad story of how the U.S. health care system has failed the people. So I don't think it is partisan to expect your congressman, after he made a promise, to vote against what he said. The other topic was tax reform. And I don't think whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, anyone was disappointed when we saw that our junior congressman got a seat on the budget committee. I mean, this is our representative here for our New York 19. This can only be good, right? And then for him to vote a tax reform bill to the floor for a vote when New York State constituents are one of the biggest losers of the bill. Am I being partisan when I call out my disappointment? I'm just a voter watching and trying to understand. So either Representative Faso got played by his fellow GOP members or someone else has a bigger influence on him than we do. Wise words from Susan. The other notable Faso development is that the League of Conservation Voters has given Faso a 34% rating on his commitment to the environment. You might hear Faso talk about his membership in the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus, but this week it was critiqued as merely a front to cover for GOP members in vulnerable districts like ours to tout their environmental credentials when really their votes harm the environment. We'll have more on this issue in the coming episodes since we know how important the environment is to everyone here in New York 19. Last note, before we get to Jeff Beals, Bazo continues to show minimal support for the gun control issues that have been raised after Stoneman Douglas. Also, he did say he'd support a bump stock ban or raise the age to buy assault weapons. Now, this is just Bazo following Trump's lead and not leading for himself. But he will continue to take NRA money and support the concealed carry reciprocity bill. So there you have it. Now moving on, our tiny town hall with Jeff Beals, here on Spotlight 19. Hi, I'm Matreya Motel. I have a video blog called I, I as in the eye in your face, ionpolitics.net.
I'm Atreant. Hi. So, my question is, I saw on Facebook how strongly you feel that people shouldn't have automatic weapons and how terrible these school shootings are. How are you going to get the parties to work together to get some legislation on this? Matreya, it is so wrong that we have gun violence in this country and fear in schools, and it shouldn't be like this. And you should know that adults don't want this to happen, and we want to stop this. And I'm a teacher, too. And it really breaks my heart that we have students that are feeling afraid right now. And you asked what I would do with both parties. Actually, it's a question of what we're going to do with the people, because forget the political parties for a minute. The majority of Americans believe that we need sensible gun laws in this country, and we have to rally the people right now against the obstacles to the people. The obstacles are big companies that want to sell a lot of guns. And so what I plan to do is speak very clearly on this and bring together people that are gun owners and non-gun owners to stop this terrible situation because you shouldn't be feeling this way as a student and uh, I don't want to feel this way as a teacher. Thank you. But be brave. Don't don't worry. We're going to we're going to solve this. We can. We've solved bigger problems in this country. My second question is how do you think you can beat Faso? I can beat him with you and with all the people here speaking up for what we know to be true. And we know that we're better than this government right now, and we're better than him. He's not representing us. We're living in a sad time because a lot of people feel like our democracy isn't working. They feel like our country doesn't stand for the ideals that it's always stood for. But you just mentioned to me off the radio that you're studying ancient Rome and, you know, I taught a class that included that to students a little bit older than you. And the story of Rome is interesting because they had some proud institutions and they started to decay. They started to decay because people started favoring money over their values because the institutions stopped being respected. And the way we're going to beat John Faso is by standing up for our institutions, standing up for our values and rallying the people against the forces of money and cynicism. Thank you. You're welcome. Me and some of the kids in my school are going to Manhattan for the March for Our Lives on March 24th. And I've been calling up bus car companies to charter a bus. That is so great. You are, And you know what you're already doing? You're leading us. You know, all your questions for me, Jeff, what are you going to do? How are you going to beat John Faso? How are you going to work with both parties? And it's kind of amazing that you've already reached the deepest insight in politics, which is you can do it. You can do it, too. Your march is going to matter. You're leading us. Thank you. And I'm also going to try and get some of the kids in my class to do a Me Next photo shoot, too. We're going to get some Me Next signs and take photos. We need to support this movement. The Me Next movement is a movement that is against the terrible gun violence that has been happening in this country, especially in schools. Sounds like a great cause. I really think you, I'm, I'm so excited that you're doing this. You're leading us. Trust me, you can make more change than you'd ever imagine possible. Thank you. Hi, I'm Diana Klein, and I'm a 30-year postal worker, and I am president of the Mid-Hudson Area Local 3722 out of Newburgh, New York, where the plant is. So I have some union questions. Good. So tomorrow is the Janus vote. Yes. And I just want to know what your position would be on that. Right. 
we have to strengthen unions in this country. And it is terrible to see efforts that have been going on really for decades to keep weakening unions. So I, we can only hope that the Supreme Court is not going to start to weaken unions further. People should be paying union dues. Unions should be able to expand. And they are the strongest bulwark we have in our country to provide a living wage for people. And that applies not only to union workers, but to non-union workers who benefit from the work of unions. So you, could, you know where my, my fingers are crossed for that. Okay. Now, we're having many issues at the plant in Newburgh. They've been dismantling the plant since 2013. Uh, we used to have, at its max, 675 workers down there. We're down to less than 100, and they keep taking work away and sending it up to Albany. And Albany can't handle it, so it goes to Massachusetts and to Syracuse. So it's delaying the mail big time. We had um, GPSs made in a Newburgh company and put them in the mail. I can show where somebody was mailing something from Woodburn to Newburgh, takes 330 miles before the battery died. <laughs> didn't even you know, reach its destination yet. Um, so, and we need Congress to support the, postal, the, the post office and to stop trying to dismantle all these plants and to put the service standards back to where they were back prior to 2015, where if you mail something from Hurley to your neighbor in Hurley, it would be the next day instead of three days or four days. So um, would you be able to help us with that? Not only would I, not only would I uh, be able to and want to help with that, it would fit the larger feeling I have that we formed a government to empower us, to protect us, to provide for us. We need to be strengthening government institutions, not dismantling them so we can provide tax cuts for wealthy people and corporations. And what they're doing there is similar to it. They want to privatize everything. They'd rather have everybody just go to... Uh, you know, just do it through FedEx, uh, let this money go into the bank accounts of corporate executives and not be a public utility. The same thing goes for why we have bad internet. This also should be a public utility. We should be expanding the utilities that we create instead of putting them in the hands of giant monopolies that don't provide good service and that don't help our country. So yeah, I'm with you there and I'm glad that you're standing up for that. Okay. Yeah, because most of our members, even though it's the plant is in Newburgh, our, we have the largest geographical local in the country. Yeah. So our office is out to Narrowsburg, up to Hudson. Sure. Down to Patterson. So it's large. So most of our union members are in the District 19. Yeah. Well, I mean, these district lines do not accurately reflect where we all live. And, and uh, you know, so many, so many activists in Poughkeepsie are active here, and they're in 18. This is 19. So, you know, I'd want to talk to Sean Patrick Maloney, obviously. He's a great friend of mine. Yeah. Of our local, I'd want to. I'd want to work with him, but I know that it would be standing up for everything here. Good. Hi, I'm uh, Andy Cowan from Socrates. As a follow-up, uh, I have a further question as it pertains to uh, your views on on gun control. It's very complex for all of us. There's money, there's politics, morality, safety, so many things involved with it. But in the end, what we keep seeing is a lack of action and decisiveness and political leadership who take a position and crystallize a position on it. So how far would you be willing to go to you know, actively try to control what's happened with guns in the U.S. today? Because it's not really just an AR-15 question. It's a much bigger question. Right. 
your, the way you phrased it goes to the heart of it. You know, we Democrats want all the issues to be, what's your original solution to this problem? And we want the election to be some grid of candidates' positions in which we pick and choose who's the most brilliant. But the simple fact is that we have the solutions to many of these problems. It doesn't take an Einstein to come up with the fact that we need to solve the epidemic of gun violence in the country. We simply don't act on them. And the way to actually get action to happen is to sever the ties of the giant corporations and special interest groups and lobbyists who prevent us from acting. So you, first of all, get rid of John Faso. He's funded by the NRA, and we know who's bidding he's serving. You elect somebody that's not taking money from the NRA. And then, in addition, you put forward somebody that's got credibility with the other side. My family's had a farm in the Hudson Valley since my childhood. We have guns on the farm. We know they can be a tool. We have hunting uh, tree stands left and right. I'm also a former national security official. I have a friend that works the no-fly list. He tells me, how is it possible that these people aren't on the no-gun list? It's ridiculous. And it's a national security threat that we haven't taken action on this. It's a public safety threat. The entire Constitution has a preamble where we talk about domestic tranquility as something that we created a government to do. So my answer to you is, we take Every stance that we know there is a great majority for, and we don't shy away from it at all, because the great majority will be there for it. What are the stances? Ban the AR-15. It's a weapon of war. I served in war zones. I don't want to see our country become one. Universal background checks. This is widely supported. You close the gun show loophole. I think you also open up the laws so that gun manufacturers can be sued for damage. Right now, they are protected in Congress. We did this with cigarette companies. It worked. No reason not to do it here. Act responsibly. Put forward a platform like that from somebody that's got credibility with the other side. Why can't we rally a new majority on this? I think it's there. It's just obscured by the fact that special interests control the issue. Great. Thank you. Um, And my other question is, we moved up here about three years or so ago and love it. And and one of the appeals to us is the opportunities it affords artists, craftspeople, musicians, uh, small businesses. Yeah. Uh, And at the same time, it's it's a financially depressed area that's still trying to recover from years back. And I think there's this struggle between big business perhaps being wooed by the state to come in tax incentives that might be offered to make that happen, um, concerns about the environment, changes that those big businesses and big companies might bring, the, the positives, the negatives that come with that. How do you see balancing that uh, and, and driving growth at the same time? Things are totally out of whack right now. We don't control our economy. We don't control our lives. We don't control our government. It's been bought out by giant corporate power. It's been bought out by giant financial interests, many of them located in New York City that are preventing us from having a local economy that thrives. They don't want to provide funding for the arts, which are actually an engine for us here. They don't want to invest in infrastructure, which would develop things here, particularly broadband, but so many other things too. Um, And they don't want to let us control our local economy. They want us to basically um, live off the crumbs every once in a while, let everybody see 20 cents more in their paycheck, while more and more of the financial sector takes more and more of the profits home. So my simple answer to you is you get rid of the corporate congressman, which is John Faso. He's bought and paid for by those interests. And you start promoting policies that'll help people here. Top of the list, you make sure that people have money in their bank account at the end of the month. 
that's what motors an economy and nobody's got anything in their bank account. I don't know about you, but when you take off the healthcare costs that we are all paying, when you take off the money that you're paying on your mortgage or your rent, you take off the expense for your car, your groceries, all the skyrocketing fixed costs that you have, you have nothing left. So focus the policies on Medicare for all now, taking on the giant monopolies that are driving up prices but driving down service. Why are we paying more for internet than the rest of the world, even though we invented it? Our internet bills should be a lot lower too, and the service should be better. Take action on those direct things. People here are going to have more money in their bank accounts. Local economy is going to thrive. Business people will be able to open new businesses. I think that we can flourish. We have for a long time, but it's been going wrong for a long time here too. This concludes our tiny town hall with Jeff. It's the second round on Spotlight 19 for the candidates running against John Faso. Here's Saja with Jeff Beals. Thanks so much to Jeff for returning to Spotlight 19. It's been a little over six months, so welcome back. Happy to be here. So this is a session where we're going to really try to dig in. We know your stump speech by now, and we know about your background. And since we're all at the point where we finally need to determine who needs to be on the primary ballot, it's really time to just dig in and... You know, we see everyone at the forums and they have very similar views. So what distinguishes each person? Um, So my first question is about a campaign post that you had from this week. So I'm just going to read it um, before I get to the question. So it's it's a it's some text and it says first communities of color marched and said Black Lives Matter. Next, women's rights advocates marched and said me, too. Now our children are marching and proclaiming, we will not be silenced. And I wanted to discuss how we're seeing this outpouring of support for the kids from Stoneman Douglas. And we saw similar support for women who came out with their stories after the Weinstein scandal and the spurring of the Me Too movement. But we didn't see any of that same universal fervor for Black Lives Matter. We're in Black History Month right now, and John Faso hasn't publicly acknowledged it, and some of the Democratic candidates haven't publicly acknowledged it either. We're in this district that has a small African-American population. So I'm wondering, what have you done before campaigning to specifically aid communities of color or the Black Lives Matter movement, and what will you make sure you do if you're elected? Black Lives Matter. And we actually kicked off our campaign outside the Ulster County Courthouse, which is an amazing sight because it's the place that Sojourner Truth stood up to uh, achieve freedom for her son from slavery. Uh, so it's an incredible marker of, of the movement uh, right here in our home. I was actually at an event for Black Lives Matter last night in Kingston and was at a forum a week ago with uh, Callie Jane speaking and Frank Waters. And so I, I've, I've definitely been in, um, been trying to draw all the attention to this cause that I can in my campaign. And I think it's the underlying cause of this campaign. We're talking about establishing justice in our Constitution. That's the, that's the preamble. What justice? Economic justice. Racial justice. What racial justice? Criminal justice reform. Do you know that we have a prison in Dutchess County, where some 60% of the people there have not been charged with a crime. So if you want to know what I would do to stand up for these issues, 
The number one thing that I would want to do would be to stand up for real criminal justice reform because we have more people of color behind bars right now than we did in the era of uh, in slavery before in the era like before Jim Crow. And that's wrong. And so I think it's a central issue of this election. I think it's a central issue for any Democratic candidate. I know it's an issue of the election, and we see candidates time and time again talking to communities of color when they're trying to campaign. But I'm asking more specifically, what have you done to support these communities in the past? Because we see with someone like Doug Jones, whose win in Alabama was really uh, through the effort of these communities of color, but when it came to voting on the budget, he voted for a budget that did not include a DACA deal. And we want to make sure that not only are you not just, not you, but any any candidate, all, you know, many, many candidates do this, where they kind of pander to these communities to get them out to vote for them, but then they're forgotten immediately afterwards. So my question is really, what were you doing before the campaign to make sure these communities uh, were being heard? I mean, I think there's a, a little bit of a cynicism in your question um, that is what we have to break through in our politics. Uh, I've been committed to democratic causes for my whole life. I served in our government for over the course of a decade. And uh, I've had people of color, for example, people that I worked with overseas who I helped to make it into this country and achieve citizenship. And in our campaign, we formed actually community councils with people from all walks of life in our community, including people of color. We were out actually all across Kingston just the other day interviewing people on camera about their experiences as people of color in our district. So it's a cause that I'm committed to completely. And uh, like I said, I think that it goes to the core of what we're fighting for here. Sure. Um, and you also speak a lot about how your service with the State Department in Iraq sets you apart from the others, and also from John Faso. Um, during your time in Iraq, you state that you worked to promote peace and mediated the drafting of the first Iraqi constitution, which is very impressive, and I don't want to detract from that. But also during your time there, uh, Ambassador John Negroponte had a very different agenda for Iraq that uh, was frankly, based on his experience in Latin America, where he uh, observed some death squads that the U.S. was a part of in uh, through the CIA in Latin America throughout the 80s. And there are reports that there were similar death squads in Iraq during that time. So I'm just wondering um, if you could speak on that a little bit and if, uh, in fact, some of these reports are true, why you wouldn't have called attention to some of these injustices in Iraq that went on during your time there? I served our government over the course of a decade. Uh, I served it as a U.S. diplomat in the Middle East. I served it in the CIA as an intelligence officer. One of the things when you serve in the U.S. government is you serve under multiple administrations, and you're a government servant. And you put yourself forward for this country on your belief in this country. So I wound up serving under Democrats and Republicans in my time. I served under the Clinton administration. I served under the Bush administration. Um, when I was in Iraq, I was called out there a year into the Iraq war. Uh, I was not involved in the war. In fact, the State Department was sidelined. And uh, I faced a real judgment call. Will I answer this call to help our country find a way out? 
And I felt that I had to do that. Um, I speak fluent Arabic. I have a lot of experience in the Middle East. And we had over 100,000 soldiers in danger in Iraq. So I answered that call. I went out there. I served under what wound up being five or six different ambassadors and chiefs of mission in Iraq. The first one I served under, as long with thousands of personnel in Iraq, was John Negroponte. He was the uh, ambassador there for a total of, I guess, overlap of three months. Um, what you're alluding to there, I don't really know. I think you're alluding to an internet conspiracy theory um, that has to do with John Negroponte's record in the 1980s in the Honduras when I was in third grade. So I have I that that has nothing to do with me. Well, I think that some of the uh, kind of some of the literature about the Iraqi war in the 2000s compares some of the efforts that were made in El Salvador and Honduras to have death squads against insurgents and people who were uh, working against the government that would be supported by the U.S. Some of those same similar policies were implemented in Iraq, and that's no, documented. No, no. That what you're, what you're referring to, and I've seen it myself, and this is what I mean about the age of cynicism in which we live, there is a, a website out there set up by a a 9-11 truther who is anti-vaccine and a climate change denier who has published some strange rantings about the Middle East. Now, Iraq was a dark experience for our country and a tragic one. And it was something that I risked my life to help us find a way out of and helped to do so. But it is, uh, it's, it's not right for us to just go into internet conspiracy theories unless you have specific evidence. Well, I'm talking about reports in the New Yorker and the New York Times that uh, no, refer to the yeah. this United States efforts to kind of quell dissent while they were trying to implement the government in Iraq that they supported. The article that I saw, the internet article, actually refers to the New Yorker by quoting an article on the New Yorker that talks about me and the work I did for peace in Iraq. And it's quoted out of context in this internet conspiracy screed. And it says, Jeff Beals was one of the political officers in Iraq who talked to a wide range of Iraqis, including extremists. I think that's the direct quote, which is exactly what I did in Iraq. I helped to reach out, find the insurgents that we were fighting in Iraq, and find a way to open a dialogue with them. And I literally began exchanging letters with these people until we reached the point that I was able to go to our ambassador and go to our generals and say, you can't kill everybody here. Why don't you try talking to them? And I convinced them to sit down for the first talks in which we did that at the highest levels in the war. I think that's exactly what my question was. What did you specifically do when there, there are these accusations against? Yeah, quite John the opposite. Neg yeah, quite the opposite. I was working for peace in Iraq. I helped create those talks. They hadn't existed before. It was an enormous struggle. I walked into a general's office who told me we have to kill all of these people. They are killing our soldiers. And I said to him, we can't kill them all. We have to find a way to talk to the other side here. You're talking about a huge portion of the Iraqi population. And he did not agree with me, but I convinced him and our ambassador to come together for these talks. You know what these talks were? Literally, we went, we, we went into a, a room in a house in Baghdad in a neutral site where a large group of insurgents that I made contact with came in. Some of these guys had not showered, you could see, in months, okay? They were bedraggled. They were coming in, looking at Americans for the first time. We went around the room, introduced ourselves, 
and you had people sitting there announcing, hi, I am with this Islamic army fighting the Americans. They literally like this session we're having here, but everybody in the room was an insurgent. And we started to talk about finding a way out of the endless cycle of violence in Iraq. It was a landmark event for us, and it was something that I still believe in really strongly as the way ahead for us in the Middle East, not killing everybody, talking to them. Sure. And I think that's a perfect segue to my next question, because one of you've campaigned on being a working person in this district. Um, You and your wife both work at Woodstock Day School. You have two kids. You're you're kind of right. uh, A good kind of indicator of an average family in this district. Um, But you're also running for Congress and you've talked at length about the campaign finance report. that there needs to be campaign finance reform. Um, some of the other candidates are accepting, you know, large amounts from people who work at various corporations, and that's something we've talked about. Um, and you're not doing that. You're running a different kind of campaign. But um, you were also able to loan yourself $56,000 from the FEC data. So I'm wondering, how do you convince folks? Because I, I looked at all of the NRCC literature, that's the National Republican Congressional Committee, and how they attacked Zephyr Teachout. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to be prepared for that because they really pinned her as this elite, as someone who had money but was trying to portray herself as mm-hmm. one of them. So I'm wondering, in light of the fact that you know you were, you were in a position to give your campaign a loan, uh, how do you still go out to people and say, you know, I'm one of you? <laughs> I'm 41 years old. I've had a career in government. I have a wife and two children. uh, And I put in and and I filed an asset disclosure form that reveals actually that I have no, no, I mean, that's the entirety of my assets. So I I wanted to jumpstart the campaign. I needed funds in order to do it. And uh, that's how I started it. I don't, I, I know people in this district. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't even have enough money for a lot of things in my life. I'm not, I don't have enough money to own a home. Uh, so I, I certainly know what people are going through here because I'm going through it. Well, how will you kind of combat against the, the inevitable attack that, you know, you're, you're saying you know what we're going through and what by we I mean people in this district are going through and the average income of a family of four in this district is around $55,000 and you're someone who's who was able to benefit from growing up in Scarsdale, one of the most expensive school districts in the country. Mm-hmm. And you're also teaching at Woodstock Day School, which has a very high uh, tuition rate for its students. Uh, it's a private school. So how how are you going to make sure you defend against those attacks that are inevitably coming? I look at the, the literature against Zephyr. It's sure. Every... Every week they would put out bullets like, let's send her back to Brooklyn and they're going to do the same thing because it worked for them. Right. Well, the simple fact is that I, I do work in this district with my wife. We don't receive benefits on our job. We had to shell out $1,200 over the last week for dental care that we thought was going to be covered by our dental plan, but wasn't. And that is just one of so many unexpected expenses that we face every day. We don't even really take vacations. We don't have um, enough money to get by. I had a good childhood, and I definitely came from a background that gave me a lot of advantages in life. I went to a great high school. I went to Scarsdale High School. I learned so much there. And, uh, you know, it's partially that experience that actually drove me to want to be a teacher. It's part of my experience of what 
you can achieve in America that wanted me to help others achieve it. But I don't know that any of this really touches on what I'm really about and why I'm running. I'm running because I think too many of us, myself included, don't have a clear path ahead in our society anymore. We're not earning enough. We've worked for 40 years, if you look at our economy, without a raise while fixed costs have skyrocketed. I think that's wrong. And it does affect me directly. And it is clearly something not affecting John Faso. And that's why I'm running. That's what I'm speaking to. Uh, you also talk a lot about public education, how it's going to be, you know, the foundation of this new path forward in some of your policy positions and that you're an advocate of public education. So you had some time before you moved to Woodstock uh, to teach at the day school. And my question is, uh, why not become certified as a public public school teacher in that time to uh, help public school kids and instead of, uh, you know, private school kids? Yeah. I did a, I've done a lot of things in my life. Um, I was working on a whole huge variety of projects before I started teaching full-time at Woodstock Day School. I shot a film all over the Hudson Valley. I wrote a book about my diplomatic service in the Middle East. Um, I raised livestock on my family's farm, and I substitute taught. And when I needed to have a full-time job, I looked out for what I could get. And I think that teaching is honorable work no matter where you do it. I'm very proud to be a teacher. Uh, people in our community that know the Woodstock Day School know that it is a really proud community institution um, that provides financial aid for students to go who can't afford it. Uh, I certainly, uh, me and my wife, are not of the people who could afford it, but we're able to because we're teachers there. But I'm the product of public schools. I believe in education. You could see it in every in everything in my life, not only being the product of it, but also advocating for a big, big investment in our institutions, well, in our country. Why not make the investment yourself and become a public school teacher? Maybe. Hey, I mean, <laughs> it's, a, it's that's years of education. I have to, I need a job right now. Right. But yeah. for between the time you came back from Iraq in around 2008 or 2009 and from the until the time you started at Woodstock Day School. I'm 41, Sajid. There's plenty of time, you know, if you, <laughs> no, you no, know, no. In, I, that, I, in that time yeah. when you answered your call to teach, because I listened back to our first interview. Sure. Why not get the certification? It's actually not that difficult, especially for people like yourself and myself that have an advanced degree to get the certification in New York State. Life's an evolving thing. I, I was doing a lot of things at that time. I was very, very busy um, writing a book and directing a film. And I had never taught full time before. And so the way that I checked it out was uh, in my spare time was to substitute teach and feel whether or not it was something that I loved. I also spoke at uh, boys clubs. I, sp I gave speeches at various schools. And it was in the process of doing that that I started to fall in love with it. And when I had the time to devote to it, I took the job full time. And, you know, where that goes from here, sure, it's an open question. Your campaign really highlights the growing separation between haves and have-nots. This week, we saw some debate about your farming experience. And while I don't question whether your family's farm actually has livestock and that you did do that work yourself, there's this other issue that your family's farm is actually their second property. It's a really valuable property in Putnam County. 
So if something goes wrong on your family's farm, it won't make or break your season. Whereas for many farmers here in the district, it's their only source of income. They would have to file for bankruptcy. So this controversy surrounding your farming experience, what it actually showed to me is this divide between second homeowners and lifelong residents that we've addressed here on the show a few times. So how do you actually plan to address this issue in particular? You know, I think there are a million ways that people try to divide up what are 90% of us who are being screwed over in our country right now. And one of the most common tactics being used by the right wing especially is to paint anybody who's a progressive as somehow an elitist. And it's a total distortion of what our politics is right now. It's not left and right. It's actually people that are standing with popular policies that will benefit the vast majority of people and people that are standing with corporate policies that will not benefit them. Now, I, um, I've i absolutely had a wonderful life, and my family has had a farm for uh, now 30 years since I'm not, more than 30 years since I'm nine years old. We have raised hundreds of goats there, hundreds of turkeys. My dad's uh, a member on the board of directors of the Farm Bureau, uh, served on the Soil and Water Board, and uh, has been actively farming for so long and we've all worked on it. It's been a wonderful, wonderful part of my life and it gives me insight into agriculture. But we also have a tradition and I think it's in our Democratic Party of remembering that we have to speak to larger causes. Now, I am not the embodiment of every single person in New York 19, but I am a voice of people in New York 19. I am a person working here and trying to get by and uh, having the challenges doing it that a lot of people are having in the local economy. Whether or not I, my family had a farm, I, I don't see that that detracts from it. I think it adds to the insights that I bring to it. Um, I, I might agree, and I do, but a lot of the, a lot of the opposition to Zephyr Teachout was to paint her with this brush. So how are, how are you going to oh. make sure that if the Republicans... if Let's say you're nominated. Yeah. When they when they use it against you, what what they would actually do is publish this blog. Sure. With like six bullet points, like sure. Zephyr Teachout's Vermont farm and her roots in the Hudson Valley, or like she never well, came my, back. Well, my my so. uh, I, I don't I don't have any of those weaknesses. You know, uh, my my connection to our home is beyond dispute. I first of all I work in the middle of the district, raising a family in the middle of the district, and I voted here against John Faso in the last election. He's not representing me, and I'm standing up to run against him. Furthermore, my roots here go back before I was born. My grandparents were denizens of the bungalows of Sullivan County in the western part of our district. My dad was a waiter in Allenville, and my family's had a farm here in the Hudson Valley since my childhood, uh, since far before there ever even was a New York 19. Uh, So none of that is in dispute. What we have to remember when the Republicans come at us with these things is to not begin to give ground to the forces of nativism and bigotry and exclusion that they want to use in our debate. You know, I've heard people say in this election, I'm born and raised in in New York 19. What? New York 19 existed since 2012. You'd have to be six years old, okay? What we really have to remember here is that we are all the people of this place. There's some people that are second homeowners. Some people moved here last year. Some people have been here all their lives. But all of us are in this together. And the thing that I think unites us 
is that we really represent the 90% of the population that has been left behind in this economy. This is a question I ask to everyone. If, if you uh, don't end up winning the primary, do you commit to supporting sure. the others? And what does that actually look like? Will you encourage, you have this great, great volunteer structure in your campaign. Are you going to encourage them to go out and help whoever wins, um, you know, get out the vote and defeat John Fazzo? Absolutely. But let's not kid ourselves about what's going on right now. There's a struggle for the soul of the Democratic Party taking place right now. And there are a lot of people who want to see the Democratic Party stand clearly for things so that they can want to vote for it. And right now, what are those things? To me, they are absolutely standing up for enacting Medicare for all. There's a crying need. People are dying. This is an enormous issue in our election, in our district, and in our country. I think we have to stand up for it. I'll go further. We have an economic inequality problem, an income inequality problem that is so dire that it amounts to the moral crisis of our time and the economic crisis of our time. Are we going to stand up as a party to breaking up the big banks? Are we going to stand up to do that? Are we going to stand up right now at a time of climate breakdown and say we're done? We are getting off fossil fuels and moving right now to a Green New Deal? Those are the things that I'm committing to. I'm the only candidate committed to the off fossil fuels pledge because it is blaringly obvious that we have to take this step for our national security right now. The reason I've taken those positions is because I believe in them. But I can tell you that when you go out on the campaign trail, you talk to independents, Republicans, we have some of them volunteering on my campaign. We have Democrats on my campaign. We have people who used to be Democrats who stopped being Democrats on my campaign. All those people are committed to this cause because of those issues. Don't patronize them. Don't, don't act like, well, they better follow whatever Ayatollah Jeff tells them to do. Ayatollah Jeff is going to say, we got to win this election and defeat John Faso. But people want to vote for something. People want to vote for real causes and real stands. I'm taking those stands. I'm just very worried because the, as much as I despise the tax bill, and I know it has consequences, but I saw, I saw my little bump in my paycheck and people who are not as... Uh, as in tune with what's going on are going to say, you know, the woman, Paul Ryan got lampooned, right? For saying the woman who right. 150 a week extra and it's going to pay for a Costco membership. But that same woman and other people are not following these things as closely. But what they are following is that, oh, wow, in the past year, I'm, I've just gotten this gift right. back for my Costco membership and people aren't you hear thinking that? so deeply about these issues. Lose you, that worry that you're feeling, that's how we lose the election because it's a worry that is misplaced. We have answers that people want. We absolutely, people out there are, have a crying need for Medicare for All to institute it right now and enact it. They are suffering under their medical bills. They will get behind our agenda. You know, this bump in the paycheck. You know, I did a class trip uh, just the other week with my students because we read the news. Oh, everybody got a $1,000 bonus at Home Depot and Walmart. So I said, hey, we're doing a class trip. We went to Home Depot and Walmart, and we walked around to the employees and started interviewing them. And guess what? We couldn't find anybody that got a $1,000 bonus. We couldn't find one person who got it. You know why? Because it was a scam. It was crumbs thrown. It, in fact, the only way you could get it is if you'd worked there for decades. Meanwhile, most of the people we met had not, 
Many of them were part-time not receiving health benefits, and all of them were not happy with how their lives were going and desperate for somebody to stand up for them, get them vacation time, get them sick leave, get them family leave, make their lives livable, and they're not right now. If we speak to those people and those needs, we're going to rally a huge majority. Nobody is getting conned. Yeah. I got to just agree with her. I mean, I, I see a lot of people working at the post office, and they are thrilled that they got an extra $19 right. every other week in their check. And her point is most people aren't so involved that they're going to know everything that goes behind that. They All they see is $19. Hey, this is working for me. And, I know exactly what you mean. And this this worked for George W. Bush in 2004 when he, he was a little bit smarter because he sent a separate check to people. Right. Just yeah, to say yeah. they're going to get behind me. They're not unless there's another component to that. Sure. Well... Things have gotten so bad in this country that people are willing to get thrilled over a $19 bump in their that's, paycheck. That's the point. But here's what you got to tell them and what you got to be really clear about is you say, don't be bought off so cheap, 19 bucks. Do you know the trillions that were just passed to corporate America? Do you know how much more you should have? And then you ask that person, let me ask you this. Do you have credit card debt right now? Guess what? How much of the interest you're paying on that? Do you know we tried to set up a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that was to stop predatory lenders from jacking up your interest rates? And do you know John Faso wants to get rid of it so you can keep paying that debt forever? Is that good for you? Do you have medical debt right now? Chances are they will. Or if they don't, they're living under fear of bankruptcy if they fall ill. Tell that person, hey, uh, do you realize that we're trying to enact Medicare for all so you don't face any of these costs anymore and receive a huge savings in your life? I'm just telling you right now, I get a paycheck. You give me 19 bucks. I still know that I spent that 1200 on my wife's dental last week. Uh, you could wake me up pretty fast, and you could wake up a lot of people pretty fast if you speak in those clear but you terms. Have, but you have to have somebody have that one-on-one -on -one conversation putting it out there. I, it's it's difficult for – I think it's really difficult to message it in that – Ultimately, in an election, you have to distill your point, which sure. Democrats fail at because they're, they don't have to just be offensive, which the uh, uh, Republicans are, and they can just say they want to raise your taxes, <laughs> and that right. they do it every time. That's why we, yeah, this it, is smart. It works for them. Well, that's why I'm trying to tell you that the way the whole conversation should be taking place is... Why do we have a government? Why are you running for Congress? Why did we do any of this? We did it so that we could build institutions that could empower and protect us and provide for, op for opportunity for us. That's why we have a government. We the people. People are really starting to dig into candidates' past. And one of the questions that has come up regarding your past is whether or not you were involved in a company called Dragomon Partners. This is a company currently helmed by Ali Khediri, who was a fellow diplomat of yours, and he actually sometimes appears on media as a Middle Eastern expert. And in the website that was active in 2014 for Dragomon Partners, you're actually listed as working there. But during this time, you are telling people during the campaign that you were working on your family's farm in Putnam Valley. So I was just wondering if you could clear this disparity up for us. Yeah, I think that people don't know everything about my life. It's, you know, when I came back from the Iraq war, it was a very disillusioning experience and uh, very upsetting to see the Middle East fall apart and to know the area and the region so well and to see people that I knew killed, uh, to see our country mired in a terrible war. 
And uh, I came home and I looked for ways to address what I felt and figure out what had gone wrong. So a big thing that is probably missing people don't know about is I, I wrote a book about my diplomatic experiences in Iraq. Um, and we haven't published it yet, but I have an agent for it. And it tells the story of the mediating, the drafting of Iraq's constitution, trying to struggle to speak to the insurgents and trying to be a voice for peace in a U.S. foreign policy that was turning to militarism. And actually, another big part of my life that people don't really know much about is, you know, you were talking about working on my family's farm. I was actually engaged in a really large project all over the Hudson Valley with over 100 actors and artists. Me and my brother collaborated together. My brother's a cinematographer to write and direct a feature film about the commercialization of our country and the commercialization of childhood in America, particularly the candy industry. And we shot this film all over the Hudson Valley with artists uh, from New Paltz, with a star uh, named Julie Novak, uh, who's a comedian in Rosendale and a great friend of mine. And the film is called The Hard Candy Kid. And right now it's actually out in submission to festivals. Um, so we haven't screened it yet, but I think we'll do a sneak peek for anybody that is really curious about it in the near future. One of the things when I was working on those projects was a call I got from a friend of mine, Ali, who I worked with as a diplomat in Iraq, who said, uh, why don't we set up a uh, website for translation and research consulting on the Middle East? We called it Dragoman because that's the name of a era of history I love, the interpreters. That means the interpreters that were there in the former Ottoman Empire. We put up the website in 2014 and did exactly no business. Uh, we never did a contract. We never did anything. We just put the website up. And uh, ultimately, the website went down. Um, but I was an official that had a lot of U.S. government experience, and I speak the language fluently. And I thought, hey, maybe there would be some good I could do there. And it was interesting to me to discover that, you know what? They don't want Jeff Beals to do uh, translation research consulting in the Middle East. They want me to do oil deals. Uh, they want me to do defense deals. And that I won't do. I had a friend of mine who actually translated novels by Naguib Mahfouz, who years ago had been in a business deal where he had helped find camels for the circus in Egypt. And he had told me all about that. And I thought, oh, well, that's pretty cool. You know, I know the Birkash camel market in Cairo really well. How awesome would it be? Me and my brother once shot a film on it. Why don't I go over there? Uh, or they want to solarize Saudi Arabia. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, but none of this even happened. Uh, it was just a website that didn't do any business. Ultimately, it went down. Uh, I was committed towards working on the film. My friend Ali went on to rename it Dragomon Ventures and put um, up his own I site. I think the original website, and we might give some more context for the recording, um, is the original website is Dragomon Partners. And that's, that's the archive version from 2014. And in... Um, in some of the literature that Ali Kadiri is part of because he uh, was sometimes used as a contributor for various press outlets, he, he refers to it as his company that is based out of Dubai. So I guess the drop-dead question here is, were you involved in that company that he had back in 2014 at all? There was, there was no company. It was just a website. You so know, when he's no when done. he's described it, for example, in Politico, he wrote a letter to Obama right, and the, the footnote at the end is, you know, Ali Kadiri is the head of Dragoman Partners. And at the time you're listed on that website. Yeah, is, right. Does that mean, you know, that's just what he submitted to Politico as his bio and 
they right. they weren't doing any work. I guess that's the confusion here. Well, that... you know, people, you 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 put up a website and you say, "Hey, I'm doing this," but if you're you know, ultimately, it doesn't go anywhere. So, in the case of you know that, it's really no more than a title and an idea. He's continued to pursue it. I haven't been involved with it. Um, and like I said, it, it never really went anywhere. My involvement in it never really went anywhere. And, and in the yeah. in the permutation of his business now, you're no longer listed as part of it. Yeah. How can you quell people's fears about the fact that you work for the CIA? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that was the job that, that was the, the best paying and first job that I could get out of the government. My dream was always to be a U.S. diplomat, but you can't get that job right away out of college. You need seasoning. So I started as a graduate fellow there um, in uh, 97, and then I worked as an analyst. I wasn't involved in anything uh, covert. What I did was help to write the president's daily brief and help to brief congressmen and senators for a more informed Middle East policy. So I know how people can feel about the institution, but the truth of the matter is I'm the kind of guy who not only moved on to be a U.S. diplomat, but... It's my knowledge of our national security apparatus that makes me so committed towards standing up, stopping torture. You know, I was in Jerusalem as a diplomat when the news on Abu Ghraib broke. You know, I cried in my office, and and so did some of my colleagues. It was one of the darkest moments of my government career that our country could even countenance doing something like that. So I know how we live in dark times where people can be cynical about government institutions or people can be fearful about what they are. And all I can say is I've always lived in accordance with my ideals and my integrity. And that included a struggle. You know, I was in Iraq one time as a diplomat and a CIA official wouldn't let me in a meeting. Uh, that should tell you something. They didn't want to let me in because they knew that if I saw anything that I felt contradicted American ideals and policies that I wouldn't hesitate to speak out. Thank you so much for your time and taking the heat. I love it. Listening to Spotlight 19. And thank you for tuning in to our podcast. That's what you're for. We will be back next week with the Tiny Town Hall series featuring Dave Clegg. When you come up to the house. Until we do, be well. Come up to the house. And keep the faith.